Welcome to Season 4 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Professor Stephen Fogarty is president of Alpha Crucis College, a self-accrediting higher educational provider and the National Training College for Australian Christian Churches. He has held this position since 1999. His role involves providing leadership to the academic and administrative staff and students of the college and representing the college to its various constituencies. His research explores transformational leadership and the relationship between leader and follower motivation. In our wide-ranging discussion, we talked about how he defines transformational leadership, how the leadership landscape has changed over the last decade, and what the current COVID-19 pandemic has taught us about effective leadership. I hope that you get as much out of this discussion as I did. Professor Stephen Fogarty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Where are you phoning from? I'm in Palm Cove in uh, North Queensland. Beautiful. Yep, it is. Lovely, a lovely part of the world. Hmm. And and you mentioned that you had done a number of um, uh, interviews already today. So uh, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Yeah, my privilege, Matthew. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you so much. Um, Probably the most important uh, question of the interview, what is your coffee order? Uh, it's a skim piccolo. Fantastic. Straight to the point. Um, skim piccolo in the morning, um, but if it's the end of a dinner meal, it's a um, it's an espresso, short black. <laughs> and so you, you would have coffee uh, in the evening? That doesn't keep you up? No, I can have a coffee and go to sleep immediately after I've drunk it. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's amazing. Um, I'm interested, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, obviously excluding your family, they are invited. Um, who would be there and why? Yeah, well, obviously, yeah, as a Christian, it'd be great to have Jesus there, but let's leave him out for the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, love to, I'd love to have the Apostle Paul there. That would be fascinating. Right. And, um, I reckon um, St. Augustine would be interesting. Amazing. Um, probably uh, Martin Luther. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, James Joyce, uh, throw in someone uh, quite different, you know, fascinating thinker and novelist of the early 20th century, who is Irish. And of course, Irish is my heritage. So, um, wow. so I have an affinity with James Joyce. It sounds, yeah. like a, uh, it sounds like a wonderful dinner party. It'd be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know whether they would get on with each other. I, yeah. I mean, Luther, Luther will argue with anybody. He'll dispute anybody. Yeah. Uh, Augustine is so complex in his thinking. I don't know whether you would understand him. <laughs> James Joyce might be obtuse. And Paul is such a determined forceful character so what, what, what a meeting i should have some women there as well <laughs> to balance yeah. them out but if i'm being completely honest with you they're the they're the characters that would intrigue me most um in history at this point amazing i mean it sounds like a fascinating uh, a fascinating dinner i would love to be a fly on the wall uh, in those conversations um i'm just interested um stephen what was your uh, upbringing like and and what was what's your history been uh, in education so far yeah, well, I, I grew up in Perth. In fact, I, I grew up initially in a country town in the southwest of Western wow. Australia called Collie, but then mostly in Perth, um, right through the Catholic education system. 
um, went to Catholic Church right up until almost the time that I, I was converted and started attending a Pentecostal church. Um, my parents put me through uh, private schools. So I went to a, a GPS, so you know, one of the expensive uh, private schools in Perth. So uh, a really good education and a very stable um, childhood. I, I value um, my upbringing. We had my parents' 50th anniversary several years ago, and I think it was I who made the comment that any of us uh, children who've gone astray, it's our own fault. We can't blame our parents because they did everything they could to give us a, a stable and, um, and uh, a loving, I think, um, amazing home environment. Yeah, so I'm very thankful for Amazing. It sounds like um, you, you had a wonderful upbringing, so much to be grateful and thankful for um, yeah. your parents. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, yeah, if so, yeah. One of the surprises I found in pastoral ministry was uh, running across people who had dysfunctional upbringings, and I could really couldn't quite ever understand it fully. So, yeah. <laughs> so a slight disadvantage in the counselling situation. Yeah. Wow. Well, my understanding, uh, Stephen, is that your uh, PhD was in organisational leadership. Um, what what were uh, some of your findings and why was that an area that you were so interested in? Yeah, you know, there's this age-old discussion in church circles um, about whether leadership's important or not, and, and um, particularly in the top of church circles that I'm connected with. There's a strong emphasis on, you know, God moving in our midst. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, is often quoted. And so sometimes there's an idea that if, um, if one prays enough and, um, and one cares enough and one's spiritual enough, then everything will go right. But over time, as I looked, and I just came to the conclusion that leadership is absolutely critical in church contexts and, and every other context as well, but certainly in church context. And so I thought, well, what is it? that's necessary to be an effective leader in church or in a not-for-profit, anywhere where you've got lots of people who um, give them their time, their effort voluntarily yes. or at lower pay than they might get in yes. a more professional setting. So what do you have to do to get the best out of those people? So that's what drove me, that, that idea. What type of leadership essentially brings out the best in people? If you want me to be technical, what type of leadership inspires intrinsic motivation, yes. strong internal drives uh, within people. And um, it, my conclusion, of course, is that, that all church leadership has to be inspirational. Mm. Uh, in, my, in my PhD, I use the word transformational, but in a sense, it's, it's, um, it's a synonym for inspirational. You yeah. can't just manage a church. Uh, you can't just manage a not-for-profit organisation. It, it'll do okay but it probably won't achieve its potential. It won't grow, expand, exert influence across the community. Yes. How do you do that? You've got to find a way to evoke a strong emotional response mm. from other people. And so I think that church leadership must be transformational because the whole point of church leadership is inspiring others to sort of rise above their normal interests, which are, which are important interests, is, you know, family and work and all well, they're important things, but to rise above that and see something more important, um, which in Christian uh, context is always uh, the gospel and yeah. its potential. Yeah. yeah. So, so important. I, I did a, um, a Master's of Instruction in Leadership through the University of Melbourne. And um, what was really, really interesting is I have had experience working in, um, sorry, volunteering in the not-for-profit sector and also working um, in um, for a government organisation. And so really looking at some of the, the evidence that supports the impact of transformational leadership was, was absolutely fascinating. And it's not just about this hype of getting people excited. It's actually 
as such an important component of leadership and really doing things with, with substance and drawing people towards a, a common goal is so is so essential. And I, I think it's um it's really, really it was really interesting for me to see some of the research and the evidence base behind transform, transformational leadership. I thought was was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm really interested, uh, Stephen, how on earth you find time to run marathons, attend symphonies, uh, follow the Sydney Swans, and also read literature because the last conversation uh, that I had with you a number of months ago, uh, you are my running uh, inspiration, um, really did uh, encourage me to put the to put the shoes on and go for a run. But I I struggle with time and prioritization just like everybody else. How on earth do you find the time to do all of those things? Yeah, well, it's purely as you said, it's prioritization, um, and I pretty well organise my life very very carefully, Matthew. So I'm out for a run at 6 a.m. in the morning. If I'm out for a long run, I'm out at 5 a.m. in the morning. And I love doing that. It's not a burden for me to get up early and go out. So I do that. With regard to um, uh, the symphony and the swans, well, basically, I just uh, subscribe to the symphony, uh, uh, take a membership of the swans, put those things in the calendar <laughs> and get yeah. to as many as I can. We tend to do the symphony midweek now. We used to do it on weekends, but we tend to go Wednesday, Thursday nights now because wow. it allows you to do the other things. Um with the reading, uh, I've got a fairly disciplined life in that regard. I have a, um, a structured devotional life. Um, I've got a standard way of going through um, the, the 365 days of the year with a devotional plan. I've been doing the same plan since 1985, so I just keep going over it year after year after year. And really, uh, I, I give myself a minimum of half an hour to that. So basically, it's half an hour. That, that's, that's all I'm going to do. Nothing else is going to get in the way of that. And I do the same thing with reading. And um, with uh, reading literature, essentially, I've, I've got a reading plan. Um, I tried to read the Western Canon uh, over 10 years, which means every year I go back <clears throat> to the Greeks and, you know, a sort of a selected set of readings all the way through to the early 20th century. Wow. And yeah. go back to the Greeks and go through. So it's interesting, uh, yeah. fascinating reading. Yeah, so essentially, I've got very, I'm very structured. If you take structure away from me, then I am. Um, uh, I, I get really agitated. I, I can't mm. work in an unstructured environment. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm. I, I'm even more grateful then that you would uh, take this call today. I, I hope that uh, it's not interrupting too much. Um, so very, very grateful. Um, so why do you think it's important to do things outside of your professional career? I mean, you, you obviously have a, um, a vibrant professional career. You uh, uh, um, seem like you have a lot on your plate, but why is it important to do these things that, that, that stimulate you outside of your career? Yeah, look, you know, uh, so you don't get bored and so you don't become boring um, in, in a very, very short term. Um, one of the problems with long-term leadership is that you just become set in your ways, you repeat mm. the same old mantra, uh, people know what to expect from you, and that's um, that's counterproductive yes. to your influences of leadership. They, they've got to see something fresh and something that excites you. So you've got to find things that create joy um, and spark interest in you. Yes. Um, and, and you just can't do the same thing for a long period of time um, and maintain that unless there are external inputs. Yeah. Uh, you've also got to walk out of your work context pretty often, and I do that. You know, like this morning, uh, I've just finished reading the Iliad, so I've just, I've just read the, um, the ultimate scene where Achilles uh, killed Hector at the outside the walls of, uh, Troy yes. uh, is a great city and um, so it's just fabulous and you go and you live in a completely different world you know this world of Greek mythology 
And um, it's interesting, it's exciting, it's different to everything else. And, but I come back out of this with a little bit of inspiration, enthusiasm, some yeah. fresh energy. Um, so I, I need that. So, so I don't get bored with my job. And, and, and any time a leader uh, gets bored with their job, you can guarantee that you're boring to everyone else. You can guarantee yeah. that your motivational potential is on the decline. Yeah. Um, you've got to do it. Now, you know, read literature, go to the symphony if you like, follow the swans if you want to. Um, I've also done plenty of short courses um, over the years and I'll keep doing them um, yeah. all over the place. So the last one I did was at Cambridge University. Um, I can't remember what it's called now, something about being a heroic leader or something. <laughs> that was just really good. Uh, it's, it's almost nothing new then, uh, but a different juxtaposition of, of uh, materials. And that, that'll give me six months or nine months or 12 months worth of you know energy to keep going. Yeah. Fantastic. So I, I find that fascinating, Stephen, to hear... Um, all of these things that, that that you're engaged with and involved in outside of your uh, your profession, I think, is so important. And it's really wonderful to hear just how that seems to be having such a positive impact in what in what you do and what you're involved in. Do you think it's important as a leader to to remain um, continually curious and ask questions and read outside of your um, uh, your, your comfort zone? Is that been an important thing for you? Yeah, it, I think it's critical. If you go back, uh, Matthew, to your earlier comments about transformational leadership, you'll know that in the most typical um, characterization of transformational leadership, they talk about sort of four quadrants of behaviour, if you like, yes. or four behaviours. And the third one is um, something called intellectual stimulation. Yes. And, and really, um, it, it is the capacity of a leader uh, to inspire creativity, ingenuity, problem-solving skills, uh, in those who you work with or the, uh, those who cooperate with you. And, you know, you can come up with all sorts of formal mechanisms <laughs> to do that. But the reality is uh, the, most, the, the most powerful mechanism is the fact that you're curious and you ask questions and you bring fresh insights. And, and so they see that in you and that inspires the same type of behaviour in others. In fact, I think leaders uh, either licence or prohibit creativity in those around and about them. Wow. And, and, and you've just got to have that spark within you. Absolutely. Yeah. And it would be amiss of me, um, Stephen, not to ask about how you think the current um, COVID-19 pandemic yeah. um, has impacted leadership and what are some of the things that that has taught us about the essential qualities of leadership? Yeah, well, it's, it's, in its initial phase, it's classic uh, crisis leadership. Um, and crisis leadership, in a sense... Um, depends upon uh, your prior preparation. Um, you, you would have heard many, many times that leadership begins with a vision, and we all we all believe that. So, um, to manage a crisis, to go through anything where the pressure is on suddenly more than normal, uh, the leader and the leaders, uh, those who are exerting influence in the organisation, really got to make maintain consistency uh, of practice, of focus, of vision, if you like. So. Where's the horizon to which we are moving at this point in time? You'd also connect that to the notion of mission. Uh, you've really got to know why you're doing this. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to keep doing something if you're just uh, making good money and, and things are good. But when there's pressure on and, and maybe it's harder, there are much more difficult decisions to be made, then there's got to be a strong sense of raison d'etre. Uh, this yeah. is what we're connected to. So I think um, it, it, it really demonstrates to any leader in any organisation, uh, the uh, the strength of their commitment to vision, mm. perhaps even uh, to values. Um, and, and then once you get into the crisis, of course, what do people want in a crisis? 
um, uh, they want confident leadership. Um, they don't necessarily want a dictatorial leadership, but they want the leader at least to exude uh, confidence, uh, capacity, optimism, uh, enthusiasm, to believe that, yes, we will get through this, or to use the famous words of uh, pre previous President of the United States, uh, to say, yes, we can. Um, so I think I think they're, they're the critical factors. Um, yeah. Don't do anything panicky. Don't make any major changes. Uh, stay consistent. Stay true to your course, and uh, and convey to those working with you, those who are yeah. relying upon you, that um, <clears throat> look, it's rocky at the moment. It's awkward. There are all sorts of pressures. <clears throat> if we can keep doing what we're doing to the best of our capacity, in all likelihood, uh, we'll ride this storm out. And uh, we'll find calm waters on the other side. Well, that's leadership in a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, you may or may not know, I work with really young children. So I have to take these really sort of complex and abstract ideas and, and make them um, yes. simple for, for young people to understand. Um, if you were um, explaining the term uh, leadership to a group of school children, um, how would you define it? Yeah. Uh, so, so, um, we need um, to cooperate to make the world a better place. Um, you know, things can be better than they are at the moment. Um, yeah. Whether it's school or sport or our community, uh, there are better things. And why don't we think about something better, a better way of doing this? And when we thought about that better way of doing this, well, how would we go about enacting or achieving that yeah. better way? Um, well, if we all talk and agree upon a way and decide to cooperate, decide to put a bit of energy in together, then we can start to change things a little bit and even change ourselves a little bit, the way we relate to one another a little bit, and we can make this thing better than it is. Um, that's the way I would go about it. I think I'd be a bit more prepared and have a couple more helpful <laughs> stories. But in the end, if you think about what I'm saying is yeah. uh, that leadership is influence exerted within relationships. Yeah, and yeah. that would be my basic thesis. Uh, yeah. Leadership is influence exerted within relationships and put that in the appropriate language for the audience you're talking to. Yeah, and I think that's so important to, um, that you highlighted on that term relationships and maybe something which is um, uh, maybe more prevalent in, um, in uh, more uh, modern definitions of leadership because um, it's not just about authority and getting people to do what you want them to do. It's actually about building that trust and building that, that real servant leadership, I think, is um, absolutely essential. Um, I mean, you have, um, you've written extensively, uh, Stephen, about uh, whether it be in the, the Fogarty lectures or the role of metaphor and organisation and management theory. And I, I, I encourage everybody to, to really check those out. But how, how on earth can we sort of begin to understand the effectiveness of an organisation? How can we analyse um, organisations to find out exactly what is going on? I'm aware that is an incredibly broad question. Yes, yes. Um, Look, there, there are a number of criteria. There's very objective criteria, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, in any organisation, uh, number one uh, needs to remain um, financially viable. So, exactly. <laughs> so right. you've got the very objective financial criteria. Um, uh, number two, uh, any organisation um, has a set of defined outcomes. Yes. If it's producing a product or producing an experience and offering something like an education, um, there are defined outcomes. Um, and, and so, Customer satisfaction tells you uh, how you are going and achieving those outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know, I obviously run an educational institution. We, it's a heavily regulated industry. There are prescribed uh, standards for doing everything. 
Um, but the most important thing for me is that um, we have uh, student satisfaction surveys, uh, student exit surveys, student destination surveys, and uh, we compared across an industry. And um, it's always fabulous uh, to read that uh, our, our students and our graduates rate us much more highly than uh, nearly every other higher education institution in the country. So you've got those sets of criteria. And then come internally, I mentioned vision, mission and values. And I think really in any organisation, uh, true to itself, has got to constantly measure itself in terms of, well, are we progressing towards our state of vision? Are we doing everything or, or does everything that we do contribute to our sense of mission mm -hmm. and, and is it on the basis of our values? Um, and then I think you've got another factor inside and that's this notion of esprit de corps um, yes. or team motivation. Um, is, is there genuine enthusiasm within the organisation? Uh, are, are we up? Um, uh, do we believe that what we're doing is important? Do we believe that this work environment in which we're doing that is healthy for the individual and the team and the organisation overall? So, you know, from, from the very objective financial uh, or regulatory requirement uh, all the way through to um, internal esprit de corps, and customer satisfaction. I think there's quite a range of criteria. In a sense, it's the same criteria, but but, but, but slightly different um, in every different industry context. And I think you've got to think right across those. And if you've got good governance, a good board or a good council, uh, that's the type of thing they're focusing on. They're, they're trying to make sure that uh, the CEO and, and the leadership team and the members of the organisation uh, understand, are aware of, and are focused on these outcomes. Yeah, yeah that's so important. And if someone who has been through um, uh, or has graduated from uh, your organisation, yeah. I can definitely attest to those uh, those values. It was a wonderful yeah. uh, place to be learning. So thank you for all of the work that you and your team are putting into yeah. that. Thanks, Matthew. That, that, that's good to hear because uh, that's always your vulnerability as an educational institution. Yeah. <laughs> in the end, there's only one thing that matters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Students feel like they've, they've learned something and they've learned it in a, um, a helpful, uh, supportive environment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, just a, a bit of a more uh, sort of broader question. Um, why do you think, or sorry, or, or do you think that initiating change or sustainable change is a challenge for educational organisations? Or do you think that um, so how are some of the ways that we may initiate change respectfully? Yeah, well, number one, um, I would say that the thing that distinguishes leadership from any other function in an organisation is the enacting of change. In the end, you know, if you want to distinguish between leadership and management or leadership and pastoral ministry, it, it's leadership is always committed to change yes. now, on the basis that even though we're happy with the present, there's a better way of doing this, there's a better future there. So we need to be pursuing that. So I think that's leadership in any organisation. Good leadership is always very change-focused. Um, in education, it, it, it's, I don't know, it's the most regulated industry in the world, but it's close to it. <laughs> so, so the problem you've got there is if you let the regulation dominate, uh, then you, you develop a compliance mentality. And basically all you want to do is do the same thing over and over again each year. Hopefully do it a little bit better, you know, be more efficient or more effective. Uh, but do it better. Well, well, I think that's a mistake because the world keeps on changing. And one thing the COVID um, lockdown did in Australia and right around the world is it absolutely shook every educational institution and said, well, you better take the online learning environment uh, seriously. And so suddenly everyone had to prop and move to something and, and then find out that um, it's not as bad as others have been saying. 
-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily diminish or devalue the educational experience. So a crisis has enacted significant innovation in Australian higher education. Now, I will say of us uh, that we were committed to that way before that. Uh, in fact, we started education uh, with cassette tapes in a box yeah. uh, way back in yeah. <laughs> a long time ago. And we were early adopters um, uh, of online education and indeed of trying to develop uh, pedagogy, you know, a, a theory of learning that's uh, more appropriate to an online learning environment. Um, so the, it's actually a challenge in a regulated environment to maintain an innovative, uh, a change-focused um, outlook. And I think in the way you do your staffing, like for me, I say, well, my job is to keep the organisation moving toward the future. My, my job is to try and think at the level of strategy, uh, to try and rise above all of the internal issues. And I've got incredibly good staff who uh, deal with all the compliance. I try to avoid it because if I get myself into a compliance mentality, I know what that will do. It will take over my mentality. I won't have any opportunity to um, essentially give the organisation the chance of the future. So maybe the, the most, most basic thing I would say there, Matthew, is in an educational environment, in a heavily regulated environment, um, just differentiate your staff uh, between those who love and who are good at all the compliance required uh, to maintain operation and then separate those whose job it is to be involved in uh, strategic thinking, uh, long-range thinking, problem-solving, looking around for new ideas. You try and separate those two things. So I think it's almost impossible yeah. for the one person to do both of those things. Absolutely. And, and Stephen, this is not a question that I submitted to you before, so uh, feel free to, to loop back to it. Um, uh, but obviously, um, the ultimate, sorry, the, the responsibility, sorry, a leader's main job is to take responsibility. So if there are issues with compliance, if there are uh, challenges that that um, are not um, addressed with your organisation, how do you make sure that you both um, identify those issues but also effectively delegate them to people beneath you? And how? what are some of those conversations that you have with people to make sure that those standards are maintained? Well, you need pretty rigorous processes um, in an organisation in any environment, any organisation wants to survive in these pretty rigorous processes, but certainly in an educational environment. So, um, um, look, if I use us as a model, and we're no different to any other education institution, there's an academic board whose job is uh, policy, yes. uh, policy. Underneath that, there are any number of committees that focus on learning and teaching or yes. research yes. or student welfare, numerous things. And those committees are tasked with essentially compliance regulation tasks yes. to ensure that we conform to this criteria. The academic board, um, its job, it, it sits there to make sure that we uh, do indeed um, adhere to the policy framework that we've committed ourselves to. And then um, the academic board uh, reports to the council, the governing body of the organisation, which is another um, uh, forum for assessing a rigour uh, strength, success. So it's policies, um, it's uh, being well enough staffed, uh, having clear enough um, uh, focal points within the organisation, mm -hmm. understanding what are the critical compliance or quality assurance um, uh, foci yes. in regard to your particular operation and, mm -hmm. then, um, and then having someone responsible for every one of those things. So uh, in the end, I would say, rigorous processes. Being visionary 
is no excuse for not having rigorous processes. In fact, visionary people without rigorous processes, you know, they, it's a disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, Do you think it's, I mean, it's obviously really important to have trust in the people that you're working with uh, and yeah. understanding of their competencies and their strengths and their areas of expertise. Um, what do you think, more of a personal question, what do you think are your greatest strength as a leader is? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think I'm, I'm very good at, um, at long range thinking. I yes. think I'm quite good strategically as a leader. Um, I think I'm very aware of the need to present an appropriate role model uh, within yes. the organisation. Um, I am not a, um, a micromanager at all. Um, so I, I employ uh, competent staff and then I give them a, a great deal of freedom to uh, pursue um, the objectives required. So I think I do those things well. I, I'd say I'm quite a relational leader. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your honesty. I think it takes a very self-aware leader to uh, to reflect on their leadership yeah. capabilities. I really do appreciate it. Um, just a couple more uh, questions, Stephen. I'm aware of your yeah. um, of your time. I just wondered, uh, what currently um, has your attention? What sort of big problem are you trying to work out in your organisation? Yeah, um, two or three. Number one, uh, we're trying to advance as an institution. We want to become a university. <laughs> um, and easy, far more easily said than done. So, um, number one, I'm very, very focused on um, the steps we have to take uh, from where we are at this moment in time, which is yeah. a self-accrediting higher education provider, to become a university. So, incredibly focused on um, the need to enhance internal processes, possibly to enhance some of our staffing profiles, um, and to make the appropriate applications uh, to government. So focus very much on that. Related to that is the need for us to develop our financial strength. Um, yeah. Education is not a profitable industry. You know, um, I know tuition fees seem high, but by the time you pay all your bills, there's not much margin on tuition fees. So yes. we've got to generate um, benevolent income, um, don donor income. So very focused on building a, um, a strong uh, donation program to the college and hopefully before I leave that will uh, have produced at least an endowment of some sort you know 20 30 100 million dollars uh, <laughs> under, undergirding the college because financial strength is key to successful um, educational institutions yeah. so I reckon they're my two main things uh, out of that um, maintaining a really um, uh, coherent and, um, and functional executive team is important. In fact, that's become uh, a significant part of my, my focus over the last two years. So yeah. I take my executive team away three times a year now, overnight or over a couple of nights, and we really just focus on the big picture. We leave all the details back in the college and we talk about um, yeah. vision and mission and values and strategy and we contemplate yeah. whether there are some new opportunities for us. So I think that's, that's a really important thing. So, yeah, and then maybe the last thing you'd say is, constituency development um, in, in an educational institution. The CEO's job, I think, is to, to make sure there's a supportive constituency, a, a community who trusts that organisation, and then on the basis of that broad community of trust to elicit donations uh, toward the organisation and indeed references and recommendations toward the organisation. So I think they're the things driving me. Personally, um, uh, my wife and I have got five grandkids, Three married children. I thought I was busy, but obviously, <laughs> yeah. So that's a big focus in our life, and we, we don't want to um, 
neglect family for the sake of the organisation. So it's an increasing focal point for us, trying to make sure we're there as grandparents. We're not the parents. We don't have to be the centre of the grandkids' life, but yeah. maybe an adjunct and the important part of their life. So it's a big yeah. emphasis for us. Yeah. Sounds like yeah. um, I think the grandparent role is such an important role. You have done your time as parents, and so you can enjoy uh, all of the the blessings of being grandparents. It's wonderful to hear. Um, I'm just curious, um, uh, Stephen, what are you what are you most proud of um, in, in terms of your in terms of your leadership over the past decade or so? What thing really stands out to you, and what do you? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think um, I'd, I'd be most proud of the fact that we've got a, a really high quality staff, and and I've, I think I've chosen every one of them um, at, at the upper levels. So I think the team that I've assembled. Fantastic. Yeah, Brilliant. Yeah, that, that'd be my main the thing I'm most proud of. Obviously, connected to that, we've had a great 10 years as an organisation, yeah. um, grown uh, rapidly by any measure. So that's good. But we've only done that because of the quality of the, the people and the team that I've got assembled around me. So that's my main achievement. Amazing. Well, um, one sort of final question, Stephen, where can people find out more about you? I, I'm always amazed at the, uh, the articles and the publications yeah. that you write and how on earth you get time to do that. But, but where can people find out more about your incredible work? Yeah, there's two websites. And I, I need to remember the name of them. But um, one's called tra Transforming, Transforming yeah. Leadership, uh, maybe transforming.leadership.com, I think. That's one. And the other one is uh, Stephen, stephenfogarty.com. Yeah. So there's two websites up there, one with my name in it yeah. and, and one with Transforming Leadership. And if you jump in there, there's, um, there's a plethora of resources that, that may be helpful. Yeah. There sure is. And I'll make sure, Stephen, that they get put in the show notes so people can be um, yeah. directed to those wonderful resources. But I, I just wanted to say on a personal level, thank you yeah. um, so much for your leadership that has had a um, indirectly had a huge impact on my life. Um, the work that you're doing um, is, is truly transformational. Um, and uh, it's, it's really wonderful to see uh, the legacy that you're building in your organisation. So I, I can't thank you enough for your time. And um, yeah, thank you for everything that you are contributing to the leadership space. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. Delight to be with you. And um, God bless your efforts and, uh, you. and make you successful. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.